And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump and his GOP rivals now canceling almost all of their in-person events in Iowa, less than 72 hours, two hours out before the critical first vote in the nation. The extreme weather and sub-zero temps upending their plans. Plus, new U.S. strikes against Iranian-backed militants in Yemen tonight, hours after President Biden said that he had delivered a message to Iran with that barrage of strikes last night. The question now is, is escalation inevitable? Also, potential complications for the Trump case in Georgia. Allegations of an improper relationship between the Fulton County District Attorney and her lead prosecutor, and a judge is now looking into the matter. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. We are now down to the crucial final three days before the first vote in the nation. And right now, the Republican frontrunner will be off the trail and on the phones instead, just like his GOP rivals. Donald Trump's campaign forced to cancel three of its four scheduled rallies this weekend in Iowa out of an abundance of caution amid severe weather advisories. And instead, they're going to hold virtual ones. Trump, who I should note spent two days in court this week, hundreds of miles away from Iowa, he was instead in Washington and here in New York, says that he thinks the extreme weather in Iowa could actually be good for him. You have the worst weather, I guess, uh, in recorded history, but maybe that's good because our people are more committed than anybody else, so maybe it's actually a good thing for us. Despite the optimism, we are told there is some concern inside Trump's campaign tonight over how those sub-zero temperatures could disrupt their plans to take the caucuses by storm on Monday. A senior Trump campaign advisor telling CNN, quote, the weather issue may take away the intensity, but a win is a win and no one has ever won Iowa by more than 12 points. So that's our goal. Maybe a bit of expectation lowering coming from the Trump campaign. I should note, of course, other candidates are also facing the same challenges as Iowans are now being warned to stay off the roads because of these blizzard-like conditions that you can see here that are spreading across the state. This is what a highway looked like just today. Drivers clearly can barely see out their windshields. The question is, of course, getting people motivated to come out and caucus when it is going to be a high of minus four on Monday. Now, Iowans are tough. They know how to deal with a winter storm and they take their caucuses very seriously. But compare the temperature that is expected to be there on Monday to past caucuses that have mostly been held in what seems like balmy weather now, 30s and 40s degrees. With wind chills, it could feel like minus 40 in some parts of Iowa on Monday. I should note that despite these dangers, the candidates are still asking the voters to bundle up and come out for them that night. I'm concerned because I want people to be safe on caucus day. It's going to be negative 28 wind chill. Um, and so what we hope is that they will wear layers, that they will bring their photo ID and that they will come out and caucus. Nobody can forecast what the turnout's going to be. Anyone that tells you they can do that is not is not being honest. It's, it's a major wild card. Obviously, it's going to affect it in some way. You're never going to have an opportunity to have your vote count more, pack more of a punch than on Monday night. So if you care about the future of the country, uh, if you believe in us, come out and do it uh, and you won't regret it. We have team coverage tonight with CNN's Jessica Dean, who is live in a very chilly, maybe frigid Des Moines. Chad Myers is warm inside the CNN Weather Center with the forecast ahead. And we have two presidential campaign veterans with their predictions here. 
as well. Jessica Dean, we'll start with you because we are now learning that Donald Trump is canceling many of these Iowa rallies this weekend. What is the campaign saying about how that could affect what Monday looks like? Well, Caitlin, publicly, they're saying this is out of an abundance of caution, and it follows a lot of the trend lines that we saw, both from Nikki Haley, who canceled all of her in-person events today, and Ron DeSantis, who canceled a number of his, though he did get to two in-person events earlier today. But we also have learned that privately, Trump's advisors have acknowledged to CNN uh, that it is going to have likely an impact, that it is just simply that frigid and that cold. You mentioned it. Iowans are not, no strangers to snow in the winter. That's pretty common. But we are really in record-setting territory here. And when you're talking about wind chills of a negative 40 on Monday, uh, that could be frostbite within 10 minutes to expose skin outside. So that's what the campaigns are dealing with. In terms of Trump specifically, though, you know, as you mentioned, he was in he was in court a couple of days this week. Now that hasn't slowed down his fundraising or his numbers in any of the recent polling. However, uh, the other two candidates or two of the other candidates who have been here on the ground, DeSantis and Haley, have gone again and again and said it over and over that they have been here. Of course, Ron DeSantis has done the full Grassley, gone to 99 counties, all 99 of them here in Iowa, and they continue to make that point. So for him to have to cancel those events tomorrow, we are just in this this very delicate time frame right up against Monday's caucuses. Yeah, and canceling, you know, the last-minute event is one thing, but, but how concerned and what are you hearing from these campaigns and from Republican officials in Iowa about actually getting people to leave their homes and go and caucus on Monday night. Because it's not just an easy go, you know, check your ballot and head back home. This is a long, lengthy thing that happens at night, not normally, you know, near their polling location, always where they go and vote. Uh, It requires a lot of effort to get people to get out of their homes. It absolutely does. And sometimes if it's a crowded caucus site, there might even be a line outside. So you're, what are you going to do with these people that, that might have to stand in line? This is absolutely something that all of the campaigns are thinking through right now. And they're all trying to motivate their voters. And it's kind of coming from different directions. So if you're Trump and the Trump campaign, they're trying to uh, make sure that nobody is overly competent, uh, confident uh, that they are going to win. And so they're trying to remind everyone that supporting Trump, that they have to come out, that they can't rely on this giant lead that he's had in most of the state polling here in Iowa. Uh, for Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, they have gone again and again to talk about the, the super PAC that's aligned with his campaign. They say they have an unparalleled organization and ground game that matters a lot in Iowa for the reasons you just laid out about why caucuses are different than just going and checking a ballot. Uh, and so they're hoping that that's going to make the difference on Monday. But they're certainly concerned about how do you convince people to get out of their warm homes and go do this. Yeah, it's a tough call. Jessica Dean, thank you so much for that. And as I said, Chad Myers is in the Weather Center tracking the conditions in Iowa. So, Chad, what is it going to look uh, on Monday, or I guess I should say feel, uh, on Monday when people are getting out and leaving their homes to go and caucus? I don't think you understand what 30 degrees below zero feels like unless you actually get out in it. I've lived in Nebraska for a long time, and I had to change a tire at 45 below and nearly lost my fingers. But uh, here's what the Weather Service just put out. This will be in effect at midnight through Tuesday. Travel should be restricted to emergencies only. If you must travel, have a winter survival kit with you. If you get stranded, stay with your vehicle. So that's where the Weather Service is on this. Right now, wind chill in Des Moines is 11 degrees below zero.
it is still snowing. There's a blizzard out there. Parts of Interstate 80 are absolutely shut down at this point. There are so many accidents out there right now. People are not getting across these east-west roads. Think about this. Most of the roads in Nebraska, Illinois, Indiana, they go north, south, east, west. Interstates can turn a little bit. But those east-west roads are getting blown shut by the wind and the drifts. So just because a plow goes by in 15 minutes, that drift can drift that road shut again. So nine degrees below zero when you're standing in line to get into the caucus. That's the air temperature. Now you add in the wind and all of a sudden nine below turns into 28 below. Up here in Sheldon, Okaboji, 38 degrees below zero. There are a lot of people here that have livestock. They have animals. They have to take care of those animals. Do they have four hours to leave them, go someplace, and then hope that they're still alive when they get back? To me, that answer is no. We'll have to see how that affects turnout. Yeah, a lot of dangerous conditions out there. Obviously, we're hoping that everybody stays safe, even if they do go out. Chad Myers, thank you for that. And let's talk about the cold, but not just that, the contest that is going to be happening on Monday night. We have two campaign veterans here. David Urban, a senior CNN political commentator and was a campaign advisor to the Trump campaign in 2016. And Ashley Allison, who is the former National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris 2020 campaign, is also a CNN political commentator. Great to have you you both here, David. I mean, I think this is a real concern that we are seeing here from these Republican candidates and also with Donald Trump's campaign, because they've been trying to get a lot of people to come out who, who aren't typical caucus goers, who maybe don't turn out every four years a lot of them in rural areas who may have to drive further to get to their spots. I mean, how much of a real concern is this for these campaigns? Yeah, so, so Caitlin, I think it's a it's a big concern, right? You there's a, there's an old saying you, you how you run a campaign, you run scared or unopposed, right? And so everybody's running scared at this point, especially in light of this weather situation. Um, Jessica alluded to it, you know, most of the uh, people go to camp caucus sites, which are, they walk in and, and they're kind of in a gym or in a school. So you're not standing in line like at a polling place like you'd normally see on election day. But nonetheless, you have to go out. If you look at those pictures on the screen right now, you're driving in that kind of conditions. And even in the daytime, it's going to be treacherous. So at nighttime, ice, you know, it, it may be give people pause on on going out. You know, if you're older, you're a little nervous driving, you may be, may be worried about it, you may stay home. But I will say this, as Donald Trump alluded to in that uh, that video you showed, um, you know, his, his followers will crawl over broken glass to get to their polling place. And uh, and I, I believe it. I was there in 20 um, at, the, at the Iowa caucuses for, for the former president. And uh, I can tell you that they were, the folks were pretty excited in 20. I think they'll be pretty excited this year as well. Well, Ashley, one of the concerns that, that seems to be coming, even from the Trump campaign, certainly, is that maybe there's a bit of overconfidence that Trump will do well so not everyone needs to turn out. They're not as worried about it. And, and the Trump campaign seems to be trying to reference that in recent days, you know, with Donald Trump himself, as he was in Iowa not too long ago, saying, you know, just because the polls look good, we still need everyone to, to come out. What does that say to you about how they're feeling about it? I mean, that's not a surprising message for a front runner. You don't ever want to get too comfortable because people then say, oh, my vote won't matter or my attendance at a caucus won't matter. But I do think this storm is also. They're going to be able to show up, particularly those in rural areas. I mean, many of us said about uh, 
couple of months ago, you never know what's going to happen. And so you never know if you're going to have negative 30 degrees. It's the last thing you actually want. But I will say for campaigns that actually have an organization like DeSantis and even like Donald Trump right now, they build an organization unlike Nikki Haley did. Uh, she has a strong one in New Hampshire, but not so much in Iowa. And so you want to be able to convert that grassroots organization to be phone banking nonstop. If you can't knock on a door, then you need to be burning up the phones, texting everybody, and then deciding like, oh, am I going to be able to get some of those folks maybe to provide rides for folks? But the reality is, is the roads are so dangerous. It's just a question of how committed are you to the candidate that you want to win? And to be honest, I agree with David, again, for the second time in a week, that <laughs> it seems like Trump voters seem to be the most dedicated. I we're, mean, we're they gonna mark went that to the Capitol and broke into overturn democracy. <laughs> so why would they not uh, go to a caucus? We're going to we're going to mark that down twice that y'all have agreed. We'll put it on our, our counter. <laughs> David, you know, she mentioned Ambassador Haley and she has a new ad out. A group supporting her, I should say, has a new ad out. It's criticizing and attacking Governor DeSantis uh, for what they say is idolizing the former president as this father figure or as they call it in the ad that we're about to show you, um, daddy. <laughs> Make America great again. Build the wall. David, what do you make of that closing argument? Yeah, well, <laughs> listen, I, I don't know how effective it's pretty. It's pretty damaging, right? It gets you to chuckle. Everyone watches it and says, you know, wow, it's pretty powerful. But you know, I, I mean, Ron DeSantis uh, was was very, was helped very much. Everybody acknowledges it to become governor by by President Trump. Came into the last, you know, with a strong endorsement and got him over the, got him over the, 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 uh, the, the threshold there um, in his gubernatorial race. So he, he, uh, he did cut some ads that were pretty pro-Trump back in the day. Incredibly pro-Trump. I mean, both the Trump campaign and the Haley campaign have now used that ad uh, against Governor DeSantis. <laughs> but actually, there was a moment, a remarkable one, out on the campaign trail today where Governor DeSantis said something that you don't often hear from a Republican, certainly not one who is running for president, saying that conservative media does not hold Republicans accountable. This is what he told reporters. He's got basically a Praetorian guard of, of, of the conservative media, uh, Fox News, um, you know, the, the websites, all the, the stuff. They just don't, they don't hold them accountable because they're worried about losing viewers and they don't want to have the ratings go down. Uh, and and that's, just, that's just the reality. That's just the truth. And I'm not complaining about it. Um, I'd rather that not be the case. Ashley, what did you make of those comments? Well, I mean, it was a complaint and he was complaining about it. But look, Ron DeSantis doesn't hold Donald Trump accountable. Um, so why why is he complaining about Fox News? I mean, it tells me that he is yet again worried. You know, people thought Ron DeSantis would be doing much better than he is right now um, leading into Iowa. He put all his eggs really in Iowa's basket. And so if he does not have a high performance, he he might not make it to New Hampshire. So I think that is a little bit of him just trying to make a, a last ditch case that I'm the underdog. But Ashley Allison. And it's kind of ironic since he doesn't even hold him accountable himself. We'll you know, see. You know, I, I would just say real ahead, say quickly, Caitlin, that, um, you know, DeSantis is talking about looking past New Hampshire. He may not go to New Hampshire. I think he's looking past it right now and focusing on South Carolina. So he's putting the marker down now that, 
no matter what happens in Iowa, skipping New Hampshire, going to South Carolina because he knows he'll do well there. So I, I wouldn't, I would, you know, like the old, uh, old Monty Python movie, I'm not dead yet. We'll see. He's supposed to have a town hall with Wolf Blitzer on Tuesday. We'll see uh, what that looks like. Ashley Allison, David Urban, thank you both. And of course, be sure to tune in on Sunday night here on CNN. We will have special live coverage as we are counting down to the Iowa caucuses. I'll be hosting alongside the one and only Abby Phillip for two hours on Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. You will not want to miss it. Ahead here on The Source tonight, though, new U.S. airstrikes against Iranian-backed militants in Yemen. It is another escalation of the conflict already underway in the Middle East. Plus, tensions are flaring once again within House GOP. House Speaker, uh, Speaker Johnson is trying to avert another government shutdown. He is also facing new threats and demands from hardliners. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking news this hour as a second night of strikes are happening in Yemen. As we are learning, the U.S. has carried out more strikes against Houthi targets there, specifically a radar facility that was used by the Iranian-backed militant group. Tonight's action carried out solely by the United States. That's different than what we saw happening last night, which was multinational. It's also much smaller in scale than the strikes that we saw last night, and it targeted dozens of Houthi positions across northern Yemen. All of this is going on. It's something the White House is watching very closely. The Houthi militants were already vowing retaliation. And today you saw mass protests filling the streets in the capital of Yemen as the White House says it wants to afford, avoid further escalation, that this was a message of de-escalation and deterrence. I've already delivered the message to Rand. They know not to do anything. We will make sure that we respond to the Houthis as they continue this outrageous behavior, along with our allies. No. Iran does not want to war with us. I think they are. Joining me now, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. I want to get to what he said there at the end about the Houthis being a terrorist organization in a minute. But but with the U.S. continuing these strikes tonight, I mean, even before this, the Houthis were already vowing retaliation. What is this fine line that the U.S. is walking in sense of they want to respond to these attacks, but also they don't want things to escalate? Well, so the United States intelligence community understands the game here. We're not at war with the Houthis. We're not looking to be at war with the Houthis. Tonight's uh, attack was based on a bomb damage assessment about what did we get yesterday and what did we miss. So it targeted an additional radar location, um, not to kill Houthis, but to disable the capability that allows them to shoot missiles at commercial shipping, major ships, U.S. and British Navy ships that are protecting the Red Sea. Uh, so that's purely tactical. At the bottom line, it's not really about the Houthis. It's about the axis of resistance, which is more than 15, some terrorist groups, some militias, some groups like the Houthis um, that are paid for, armed and trained by Iran, who have become proxies in Iran's efforts to jump behind Hamas and Israel's conflict and destabilize the region, which is in Iran's interest right now. 
Yeah, and I also want to bring in, we have Ronan Bergman with us, who's a staff writer for New York Times Magazine and the author of Rise and Kill First, The Secret of Israel's, uh, the history of Israel's targeted uh, assassinations. Ronan, it's great to have you here. Because the other part of this is that this is not something President Biden and his aides really wanted to have to confront. They have been trying to contain this for months now. But but now that we have these American-led strikes last night, the unilateral American ones tonight, what does this clear shift in strategy look like going forward? Well, it seems that as much as the U.S. tried to contain the situation, not reacting to this brutal violation of uh, freedom of uh, maritime traffic, and as much as Israel did not react to uh, the uh, cruise missiles, uh, um, ballistic missiles, and drones that were sent by the Houthis, this is, of course, an unprovoked uh, attack. Uh, I would say, I would assume that if this has happened, before October 7, uh, both from Hezbollah in the north and from the Houthis in Yemen, we will be uh, long gone with uh, full, uh, full-scale full war with between Israel and those uh, two members of uh, the axis of resistance. But mm-hmm. Israel is trying to continue fighting only the Gaza front. The U.S. is trying not to get itself, try to, but it didn't work. Uh, as far as we hear, uh, our sources, the New York Times sources, uh, uh, speaking with uh, Farnas Fasihi, my colleague at the New York Times, said, this coming from Iran and from the Houthis, said that the Houthis are going to continue the attack. And this will demand a much more aggressive reaction from, uh, from the U.S. And uh, I think uh, it's still not clear how further the Houthis are willing to go. And also... We, and this is the more important question, the, whether the Iranians who ignited this front are now trying to de-escalate because maybe the Houthis got out of, out of control. The Houthis was, were the most uh, comfortable proxy uh, far away from Iran. Yeah. Iran can say it's not us. Uh, Iran is not paying any price. But now I think that uh, the Iranians might be thinking again, uh, the question is, of course, are they able to control the Houthis, who seem to be very determined to continue their strike until, as they say, Israel stop its invasion to Gaza. Yeah. And John Miller, I mean, this really matters because, I mean, if you look at this, the threat to trade here is immense. I mean, this is some 30 percent of shipping that goes through the Red Sea. That's where all of these attacks are happening. People are having to take different routes. It's taking longer. It's costing more. This could be have global impact if this does escalate. So if the Houthis are not deterred from this, I mean, what does is, what is the Biden administration do? How do they handle this? Because there's U.S. assets in the region. If, if, a US, if, a mili- if a U.S. troop was killed, how does the U.S. respond? So um, there are carrier strike groups in the area. Um, they've been there actually for some time, although that's been augmented because of the situation between Israel and Hamas. Uh, but the Houthis are... You, you have to kind of zoom back for the wider picture. The Houthis are a proxy of Iran. Um, they are attacking these shipping routes simply because they're trying to turn up the pressure, draw the United States further into a regional conflict. Think of what Iran has accomplished. Somewhere behind a curtain in Iran is General Hossein Salami, who is the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that controls the axis of resistance groups. 
they have tweaked up the group in Iraq to fire on U.S. bases that are there trying to dismantle ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. retaliated, and that caused the president of Iraq to say, maybe it's time for the U.S. to leave the region. They have struck these shipping routes, which caused the U.S. to retaliate, which has now had several of our allies tonight come out critical of those strikes, not supportive. So what they are doing is they are destabling a region um, after supporting Hamas and supplying them with all of their missiles. Um, so Iran's plan, Iran's plan is something we have to watch very carefully because A, it's working, and B, we have to modulate our responses to make sure that we don't bite too much into it. Yeah, it's a scary situation that could, that could easily escalate. John Miller, Ronan Bergman, thank you both for your expertise on this. Very welcome tonight. Also in Washington tonight, not even three months into the job, tonight House Speaker Mike Johnson is being threatened by some of his own members with potentially the same fate as his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. Is the House GOP unleadable? A Republican insider and former Freedom Caucus member will join us next with that question. Congressman Mike Johnson has held the Speaker's gavel for two and a half months. And already it is safe to say that not only is the honeymoon period over, this arranged marriage between the House GOP conference and their leader may be on the brink of collapse as well. Listen to this. If he moves forward with a separate deal trading our border security, weakening HR2 in exchange for $60 billion to Ukraine, I told him yesterday in his office that I would vacate the chair. Speaker Johnson's position, despite those comments, seems relatively safe for tonight anyway. But what you heard there from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene fits into the threats of what has become really standard procedure for these intransigent members on the right. There is no compromise and any attempts to deal with Democrats, despite the slim majority, is seen as a betrayal. I want the speaker to start fighting for us. We're frustrated. Yes, I'm frustrated. Mike Johnson, his job is at risk. The way this place operates, I think everybody's job is at risk. What started as the Freedom Caucus's insistence on refusing to bend has turned into the last decade, solidifying its place at the core of the Republican Party, much to the bane of a succession of Republican speakers. John Boehner once bemoaned what he called, quote, legislative terrorist who made his job so impossible that he quit. And while his successor, Paul Ryan, tried to embrace the hardliners and take a different route, he too threw up his hands and retired, deciding against seeking re-election in the end. Boehner and Ryan at least walked away from the role. Kevin McCarthy, as we all remember, was tossed out by his own members. The record shows that for all the refusal to compromise, though, the results have been repeated government shutdown threats and actual government shutdowns. Every time it's happened in more than a decade has come with Republicans holding a majority of the House, I should note. And even when it comes to the business of passing laws, doing their jobs on Capitol Hill, last year's Congress actually set a record for being the least productive ever. My next guest once walked the halls of Congress as a member of the Freedom Caucus. Former South Carolina Congressman and Governor Mark Sanford joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, you have kind of said that when you were there, what passed for far right in your time is a far cry from what constitutes the far right today. I mean, how do you think that that has changed the ability of any Republican speaker to, to actually get things done? I think we lost Congressman Sanford there. We'll work to get that connection and get him back because the question here, of course, 
is what this looks like for Speaker Johnson going forward, as this is something that is quite difficult for them, and they are working on this. I think we have you, uh, Congressman. All right, we'll, we'll work on that connection. We're having some technical difficulties. We'll, we'll get him, because this is a big issue the Republicans are dealing with on Capitol Hill, what this is going to look like. We'll work on that. Be back in just a moment. Life-threatening cold and bad weather is making a difficult situation worse for many cities across the country tonight. In New York, city officials were already struggling to handle an influx of migrants, many of whom were sleeping outside hotels, as people were also protesting moves by officials to evict them from shelters after they hit the city's limit of 60 days. Then, as an intense windstorm blew through on Tuesday, a tent shelter had to be evacuated as migrants were then bused to a nearby high school. That also sparked an uproar because in order to use the school as a shelter, students had to attend classes virtually. In Chicago, where shelters are already packed, some migrants have been sleeping in city buses or even the airport. In Denver, the city is sheltering more than 4,000 people. And this weekend, wind chills are expected to drop to around below 30, degree, 30 below zero. I should note we are joined now by the mayor of Denver, Mike Johnston. Welcome back to The Source, Mayor. Thank you for being here. I mean, these are people who are not used to dealing with the Colorado winter. What are the challenges that your city is having to face to, to get these people somewhere warm where they can stay as the weather is getting this bad? Yes, Caitlin, you're totally right. These are folks that will often show up in Denver in shorts and a T-shirt, you know, and we're talking about five-degree weather here. And so we are working hard to get everybody inside. I was there at an encampment yesterday where folks were outside in five, 10 degree weather. We got them all moved indoors into a congregate shelter that we've opened, but it just underscores for us why this current situation is unsustainable and why um, I think what's frustrating for us is we actually know this is solvable. You were talking about Congress and their ability to get to a deal. We know if Congress can get to a deal here, our cities can actually help welcome these people with dignity and not break the financial backs of our cities. We just need Congress to act in these coming weeks. Yeah. You know, in Congress acting in the next couple of weeks, you know, is anyone's guess. But there's a good reason to be skeptical. And, you know, as part of as city officials are dealing with this, the governor of Illinois, uh, Governor Pritzker, he sent a letter to a fellow governor, Greg Abbott of Texas, asking him to stop sending migrants during the dangerous winter storm, warning that it, that it could kill people. Uh, do you expect that Governor Abbott will, who's also sent migrants to, to Denver, I should note, do you expect that he'll heed that warning? Uh, you know, I, w I would hope that he would. Uh, it is incredibly dangerous for us to have folks arriving in, in the middle of this polar vortex where we'll have record low temperatures. Um, but we also think this is underscores part of the challenge that the country is facing right now, which is what we need to make this work is not to have a system where one governor decides where every migrant in the country gets sent, but instead a place where we have federal dollars that support new arrivals. They arrive with the ability to work when they get to cities like Denver. And we have a coordinated entry plan. So actually all the cities and states in the country can figure out what their capacity is and take up to that capacity. The strategy of having folks just sent to New York and Chicago and Denver, I think is not setting them up for success or setting our cities up for success. Well, speaking of Governor Abbott, he's also defending himself after some comments that he made on a podcast. It was about these efforts to stop unauthorized border crossings. But there was something he said at the end that, that caught people's attention. This was that comment. We are deploying every tool and strategy that we possibly can. The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. 
When he was asked about those comments today, he said he was just distinguishing between what Texas has the legal authority to do and what would be illegal. But I wonder what you heard in those remarks. Uh, yeah, I just hear a general hostility and I think failure to see uh, the folks that are coming here as human beings who are trying to do exactly what you know, the Statue of Liberty says, which is send us your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. These are folks that have walked 3,000 miles looking for opportunity. You know, it's hard for me to get my three kids to the grocery store and back. We have families that are putting their two and four and six-year-olds and bringing them 3,000 miles to get to opportunity. I think they're looking for the American dream. I don't think they're looking to get shot by an American governor. Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, I know you got a lot going on in your city. Thanks for taking the time to, to come and join us on The Source tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Up next here, the district attorney who is prosecuting Donald Trump in the state of Georgia is now under the microscope herself amid allegations about a romantic relationship with her lead prosecutor. Ahead, we'll speak with a former Georgia prosecutor who believes that if they are true, she should step aside. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In a Georgia courtroom today, an attorney for former President Trump brought up unsubstantiated allegations, but allegations that have been out there and swirling for days about the allegation of an improper relationship between the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, and her lead prosecutor in Trump's case, Nathan Wade. Trump's legal team is considering joining a bid by Michael Roman, who is one of Trump's co-defendants there in the state of Georgia, to try to get the election interference case dismissed. Roman's attorneys are saying, and I should note with no direct evidence, that Willis improperly hired Wade, saying in this court filing that they are romantic partners, that she recruited him to help prosecute the case, while also alleging that she has benefited, that Willis has benefited financially from his appointment, alleging that Wade used some of his earnings to go on lavish vacations together. While Fonnie Willis has had little to say beyond saying that she will respond to this in court filings, it is becoming a major issue in this case. Joining me tonight, Michael Moore, a former U.S. attorney in Georgia and a CNN legal analyst. And I just wonder what you make of these allegations as we saw them coming out in this court filing. And then we saw Fonnie Willis uh, also served with papers in that prosecutor's divorce filings. Can you just kind of expand on, on what's happening for a moment? Sure. Well, I'm glad to be with you. And I'm sorry it's under these circumstances to talk about this, really. You, you know, I don't know if the facts and the motion that have been filed by the defendant in the Trump case are true or not. And, uh, you know, I don't know that any of us know, but they, uh, I, I can't imagine that a lawyer in that type of case would file a motion without having some information sort of in their back pocket. And whether that's coming from part of the sealed record in the divorce case or some other uh, source that this lawyer may have. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens on that. The, the problem that I see is really an optics problem. And, and that is that it begins to look like the, there are other things afoot other than just the prosecution of the Trump case. And I frankly, you know, the, the, the personal relationship allegations, that's their business. I'm not too, uh, I don't care a lot about that, but it's the amount of money that's being paid, the use of that money and whether or not 
actually the selection of the lead prosecutor and what we would have to arguably say is the largest case in the state right now, if not the nation, uh, whether or not uh, that was based on qualifications or something else. And that's that I think is the, is the concern for, for a prosecutor. The case, this is not Fonnie Willis versus Donald Trump and the other co-defendants. This case belongs to the people of the state of Georgia and the people more specifically of Fulton County. And so when a prosecutor's actions uh, get in the way, I think, and, and can cause an optics and an impediment problem uh, for moving a case forward, then I think they have to make a decision about what's best for the case as opposed to maybe what they may want to do uh, for themselves. I'm not saying she has not invested time, but that's certainly something she's got to consider. Yeah, and I should note, you know, we don't know anything really about right. about the allegations here. We've just seen what has been alleged. We've not really heard anything from Fonnie Willis on this. They have said she'll respond through court filings, but but no press conference, you know, no denial on background. Sometimes she sends emails to her staff addressing what's out there. We haven't seen any of that. But I just want to talk about the, the prosecutor here, Nathan Wade, and his experience, because that's mm -hmm. getting a closer look following these allegations. And, and you know, he's someone who... As a former prosecutor turned private practice, defense attorney, uh, a municipal court judge, but he was someone who worked on misdemeanors. And the allegation in one of the filings is that he's never worked on a felony case. Is he someone that typically would be in this role? No. And that's, I think that's the problem. Uh, if he's never prosecuted a felony case, you would not expect him to have been selected based on his qualifications to serve as the lead counsel uh, in, in this type of case. I mean, the, the district attorney has a has a stable full of lawyers that she could have chosen from, as well as a number of private practitioners who I'm sure would have volunteered or could have signed up to be special counsel who've had decades more experience prosecuting felony cases. If, in fact, that's true. And again, I don't know Mr. Wade's prosecution record, but if he has not prosecuted a felony case, then one would think that's basically an inexplicable occurrence to have him sitting uh, in, in, in this position. So um, that begins to draw. Uh, questions. Um, but then again, you look also now at information that's coming out because of this, because of the allegations, because of what's happening, and we're seeing his billing records. And so it's giving people on the Trump side something to grab hold to when they see in those billing records things like meeting with the Biden uh, administration and counsel for the Biden administration, when in the past the district attorney has been rather coy about what discussions she may have had with the feds uh, about the case. And so that that to me is a problem. She, she has not come out and addressed the, the allegations. Yeah. She says she'll do so in court filing. But part of the issue, too, is this district attorney has been pretty open and free with giving press statements and comments throughout the prosecution in this case, unlike Jack Smith, who basically has sort of been living in a cave while he's prosecuting uh, mm -hmm. the, the case in Washington. So this it's a very different dynamic when you look at it. He does go to Subway sometimes. That's really the only time we he see does him. Sometimes. He, <laughs> he shows up sometimes. <laughs> Michael Moore, uh, as always, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we'll be back in a moment. And we are happy to say that we have reestablished our connection with the former South Carolina congressman and governor, Mark Sanford. Thank you for being here. We were talking about the state of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill right now because these hardliners are now pushing against Speaker Johnson for a deal on funding that he's agreed to with, with Chuck Schumer, of course, the leader of Democrats in the Senate, something he doesn't really have an option, some would argue, because of, of a slim majority. But what do you make of, of these threats to revolt if they continue with, with what he's uh, agreed to and not back off of that agreement? 
Well, I think they're probably real. I mean, I don't understand exactly the the thinking of of, of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but uh, that 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 faction of the party is real right now, and it's incredibly strong. And it's strong for this reason: if you look at the the size of the Republican majority, basically you, you're looking at a a two percent margin that'll get you into trouble. I mean, I, you know, think about your business environment or think about your family. I mean, I love my brothers and sisters, but I don't agree with them 98% of the time. And yet that's the kind of margin that the speaker has to look at maintaining right now, because if not, he's, again, with a no vote and he's got to go to Democrats and that creates its own complexity. So it's just a function of a tight operating margin, a few other things that he's dealing with that causes real problems. What do you say, though, to those who say, the GOP it, right now in its current state is kind of ungovernable, governable, like un, unleadable in the sense of they pushed out Kevin McCarthy for agreeing to basically the same type of deal that we're looking at right now. Now, some of them have said Speaker Johnson won't face the same fate because they trust him more. But but you now do have some members saying that that is a real threat that he should be thinking about. But I don't think they're bluffing. I mean, I think that the threat is real, but I think I think you have two opposing forces. One is you have a Republican Party that's indeed become less governable in the, the, the Trump element, uh, sort of the, the, the fractiousness, if you want to call it that, that's come with his time in politics has manifested itself, and it's real within the Republican Party. You take with that the fact that the Republican Party has a very different operating base than the Democratic Party does. I mean, you know, you look at small farmers and small business people. I mean, a very disparate group of folks compared to labor unions and teachers unions and trial lawyers, you know, wherein they know ahead of time, if we don't hang together, we hang apart. That, that's not the base of the Republican Party. So you, you take an already tough governable group, pull it down to a margin where you've got to get 98 percent to get it right. And then add to that the Trump faction, and yeah, you got a tough governing body. It is a tough governing body. I think Speaker Johnson would agree that is a, an understatement. Mark Sanford, thank you for coming back. I know we had some issues, but we hope to have you back again soon. I want to thank you all for watching. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you on Sunday night. Seeing a news night with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.